If you'd open your Bibles again, please, <clears throat> this time to Second Kings chapter 4. If you're using one of the church Bibles, that's page 370, or in the larger print Bibles, 570, oh, 570, 370 or 570. And we'll read the whole of 2 Kings 4. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied, There is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. One day Elisha went to Shunem. And a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he passed by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room in the roof and put in it a bed and a table, a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes by. One day when Elisha came, he went up to his room and lay down there. He said to his servant, Gehazi, call the Shunammite. So he called her and she stood before him. Elisha said to him, tell her, you have gone to all this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? She replied, I have a home among my own people. What can be done for her, Elisha asked. Gehazi said, she has no son. And her husband is old. Then Elisha said, call her. So he called her and she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. No, my Lord, she objected. Please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. But the woman became pregnant. And the next year, about the same time, she gave birth to a son. Just as Elisha had told her. The child grew. And one day he went out to his father, who was with the reapers. He said to his father, My head, my head. His father told his servant, Carry him to his mother. After the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and went out. 
She called to her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly and return. Why go to him today, he asked. It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. That's all right, she said. She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, Lead on, don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant Gehazi, Look, there's a Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask her, Are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Everything is all right, she said. When she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over to push her away. But the man of God said, Leave her alone. She is in bitter distress. But the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord? She said. Didn't I tell you don't raise my hopes? Elisha said to Gehazi, I took your cloak into your belt, take my staff in your hand and run. Don't greet anyone you meet. And if anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But the child's mother said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or response. So Gehazi went back to meet Elisha and told him, The boy has not awakened. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door on the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and lay on the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. As he stretched himself out on him, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room, and then got onto the bed and stretched out on him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. And he did. When she came, he said, Take your son. She came in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. Elisha returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in that region. While the company of the prophets was meeting with him, he said to his servant, Put on the large pot and cook some stew for these prophets. One of them went out into the fields to gather herbs and find a wild gourd plant and picked as many of its gourds as his garment could hold. When he returned, he cut them up into the pot of stew, though no one knew what they were. The stew was poured out for the men, but as they began to eat it, they cried out, Man of God, there's death in the pot. And they could not eat it. Elisha said, Get some flour. He put it into the pot and said, serve it to the people to eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. A man came from Baal Shalishah, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe corn, along with some ears of new corn. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. But Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat. For this is what the Lord says, they will eat. And have some left over. Then he set it before them and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. This is God's word. And it presents us in this long chapter with two things. The most obvious thing is the miracles. There are four of them. Now, these didn't necessarily happen 
straight one after the other. There may have been some time between them. But they have been grouped together for us here in this passage. That's the most obvious thing. But the less obvious thing is the context for these miracles. They all take place among people who are committed to the Lord. This is a new thing in the book of Kings. So far, the book has dealt with kings and prophets confronting kings. If the people of Israel have been mentioned at all, we've seen them just doing whatever the king or queen tells them to do. Worshipping whatever they're told to worship. They have behaved like a herd of cattle. Give them a prod and they'll plod along in whatever direction you send them. But here we have something different. We have men and women who are breaking off from the herd. In a culture of idolatry, some people are living their lives differently. They are trusting and obeying the Lord. And the writer of Kings presents this to us as something that is developing during the ministry of Elisha. Think back for a minute to Elijah's ministry. His name means the Lord is God. And Elijah spent most of his ministry announcing that fact to Israel's kings. Elisha went to the top, to the leaders in Israel, and he called them to repent. But as we've seen, the idolatry continued. And so God announced that judgment is coming on Israel. We know that the current royal family is going to be wiped out. The line of King Ahab is going to disappear. And further on in the future, we know that Israel is going to be uprooted from their homeland and they're going to be scattered in exile. All of that has already been announced. And that means Israel is a place of death. The nation has turned away from the living God and so they have turned away from life. Israel is spiritually dead and it is headed for destruction. There's no changing that. God has promised it and the rest of the Old Testament is going to show it happening. That is the context in which Elijah handed over to Elisha. It's a pretty grim context. Elisha is called to minister in a place of death. But what does Elisha's name mean? God saves. And through Elisha's ministry, we see God building something new. Yes, Israel as a whole is a spiritual corpse. But God is bringing life in the midst of that death. And it does not start at the top. It doesn't start with the leaders of Israel. The people we meet in 2 Kings chapter 4 are no-name people. They're not that in God's eyes, but in society's eyes, they are. God's work starts at the bottom. That's what our passage shows us. God working to produce life in the midst of death. 
And if we think about Israel's situation at this point in time, then we begin to realize Israel is a miniature version of the whole world. Humanity as a whole has turned from the life-giving God. We have devoted ourselves to things that are not God. And as a consequence, the Bible tells us, humanity as a whole is not only headed for death in the end, humanity is living a life of death. We read it from Ephesians earlier, we are dead in our transgressions and sins. Death has its claws into every single part of our human experience. We're dead spirits, cut off from God. Our human relationships are tainted with death. We're more likely to misunderstand and mistreat each other than we are to work in harmony and honor one another. And we even have a broken relationship with the world we live in. Our work often turns into painful toil and frustration. The death that we see in ancient Israel is the death we all live in. And so as we watch God work in Israel to bring life in the midst of death, there will be things for us to learn about our own situation. The first miracle story comes in verses 1 to 7. At the end of Elijah's ministry, we began to become aware of these groups called the companies of the prophets in Israel. We're not told much about them. They're scattered all over, probably small. But we know they are living out of step with their society. These people are going against the flow. Because in a land of idolatry, these people are committed to the Lord. And first here we meet the widow of a man from the company of the prophets. She's in a very vulnerable position. When her husband died, we learn he had unpaid debts that he left behind. And the debt collector is showing this lady no mercy at all. He's going to take her sons as slaves for the debt. That means he's taking away her only means of support. At this time, wives were dependent on their husbands and widows were dependent on their children. This lady is going to lose her boys and her livelihood all in one go. But it was not meant to be this way in Israel. Earlier, God had given his law to Israel and it had clear guidance about protecting the poor from ruthless lenders. The king was given the primary responsibility for that protection. He was to defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. But the current king of Israel doesn't care about the needy. In fact, it's been a long time since any king in Israel has cared about the needy. You might remember how Ahab, the current king's father, he had a man called Naboth murdered so he could steal Naboth's vineyard. Israel's kings are not defending the afflicted and the needy. The kings are part of the affliction. 
And this is one of the signs of Israel's deadness. The poor are being devoured by the greedy and the ruthless. By the very people who are supposed to be protecting them. And you and I might see a parallel today in the recent revelations about aid organizations exploiting the people they are supposed to be helping. That's a sign of death in our culture, surely. Well, here in our passage, this lady turns to Elisha. She turns to the man whose name means God saves. And nine times in this passage, Elisha is called the man of God. You may have noticed that as we read it. So both by his name and by the way people refer to him, we know Elisha is God's representative here. He brings God's presence and he does God's work. And as God's representative, Elisha cares for vulnerable people who cry out to him. In verse 2, he says to this widow, how can I help you? The last time we heard from Elisha, he was speaking to the king of Israel, and his attitude was very, very different. Elisha told King Joram to get lost when Joram came for help. Joram came to see him, and Elisha said, Since when have you cared about the Lord? Go talk to the prophets of your father Ahab and your mother Jezebel. Take your request to Beal. See if he'll help you. But here, Elisha is dealing with a vulnerable lady who trusts in the Lord, and so his approach is totally different. But notice, although there is a miracle here, it's a miracle that involves this lady. She's called to participate, and her sons are too. Elisha produce a wad of cash out of her back pocket and hand it to her. He says to her, what do you have? She doesn't have much at all, but she does have a small jar of olive oil. And that is what God uses. God's provision comes as this lady puts what she has at his disposal and then obeys him. In fact, she has to go to some lengths here. First to gather lots of empty jars from her neighbors. And then to go and sell the oil when all the jars have been filled. This lady has shown her faith by turning to the Lord in her difficulty. And now as she obeys and works, God provides and her creditors are paid off. There's no doubt this is God's provision. He multiplied the oil. But his provision comes as the woman and her boys do what they can. When God is at work bringing life in the midst of death, we find that his people are dependent on him. And they're active. They go to work with the resources God has given them. And that's why when the Bible describes God's new heaven and earth, it's not only a place of abundance and fruitfulness, it's a place where his people serve him. There's no expectation around on couches all day, expecting God to deliver things on a plate. 
And that is not what we're called to do as God's people here and now. We look to God. We depend on him. We know that we can't get by without him. And in obedience to him, we put what we have to work. God brings life in the midst of death. And one way that life shows itself is that God's people work in dependence on him. We're not proud and self-sufficient. We know our weakness and our need. But we're not passive passengers either. We're active in obedience to him. If that's what we see in the first miracle story, the second shows us something quite different. It shows us that God's people cling to him in their suffering. Again, the main character is a lady. But this time, verse 8 tells us she's a well-to-do lady. She's wealthy. She has no financial needs at all. Her husband is kind of on the fringe of things. He's obviously not against Elisha. He builds Elisha a room at their house when his wife asks him to. But the husband doesn't seem interested in worshipping Elisha's God. In any case, apparently Elisha travels a lot, visiting and supporting the companies of the prophets. And he's very thankful then for a place to stay when he's close to Shunem, where this lady and her husband live. And as a thank you, Elisha wants to do something for her. She doesn't have any material needs, so what can he do for her? His servant Gehazi points him in the right direction in the middle of verse 14. She has no son, and her husband is old. And Elisha said, call her. So he called her, and she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. No, my Lord, she objected. Please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. But the woman became pregnant, and the next year, about that same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. God has given something good. This is a blessing apparently beyond what the woman even dared to hope for. But then the blessing is snatched away. We're not told how old the boy is when it happens. It may have been several years. But one day he develops a headache and a few hours later he's dead. How does the woman react? She makes a beeline for Elisha, the man of God. When she's getting ready to go, her husband seems to guess that something's wrong. She obviously hasn't told him everything. He says to her in verse 23, Why go to him today? It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. That implies this lady regularly did go to Elisha at those times. He probably led worship in various places. Remember, the official places of worship are for Baal and other false gods at this time. So the lady's husband says, in essence, I didn't know Elisha was preaching today. But the woman doesn't stop to explain. She says literally, shalom, peace, and rides off. Then when she gets near Elisha and Gehazi runs out to ask her what's up, she brushes Gehazi off with shalom as well. 
This lady knows only God can help her. So she goes straight for the man of God. Verse 27 says she took hold of his feet. And she's angry. Verse 28. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord? Didn't I tell you, don't raise my hopes? She's angry. Her hopes have been raised and then they've been dashed. She's been given joy and then she's had that joy stripped away from her. She's angry, but notice she still clings to Elisha. She refuses to look anywhere else for help. No other helpers, no other gods. This lady's situation is very different from the lady at the start of the chapter. That widow depended on God and there was work she could do in her situation. Pouring and selling the oil. But there's nothing this lady can do to fix her situation. Her boy is dead. And she is utterly helpless in the face of that. But she does the one thing she can do. She clings to God in her suffering. And for her that means clinging to Elisha, the man of God. So even when Elisha sends Gehazi running ahead to her house to see what he can do, the lady says in verse 30, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. She's right to stick with Elisha. God is our only hope, so she clings to the man of God. And when help comes through Elisha, there's no doubt at all, this is God's help. Elisha is the spiritual leader here, but he has no tricks up his sleeve. He can't fix this. He is utterly dependent on God. When he arrives at the house, what does he do? He prays. Elisha knows he's not a magician. Stretching himself on the boy is a symbolic act that goes along with his prayer. We know by now, Old Testament prophets do this sort of thing. Back in 1 Kings, we saw Elijah in a similar situation to this, and he did the same thing. The action goes with the prayer. And the point of the action seems to be, Lord, make this boy's lifeless body as warm and full of life as my body is. The only hope here is God, and everyone knows it. And God restores the boy to life. When God is at work, bringing life in the midst of death, there will not always be miraculous restorations like this one. But when God is at work, his people recognize there is nowhere else to turn. And so in their suffering, they run to God and they cling to him. Rosaria Butterfield is a lady who came to Christ out of a completely godless lifestyle. In her biography, she calls herself an unlikely convert. She was unlikely because she wasn't even looking for God. A bit like this lady wasn't looking for a child. 
But God sent certain people across Rosaria's path, and in time, she became a Christian. But she hadn't been a Christian for long before she was misled. She was betrayed by someone who professed to be a Christian. It was deeply hurtful. She was turned upside down by the whole experience. In fact, she describes her conversion as a train wreck. That's what it felt like to her. And in the midst of that, one of her neighbors came to see her. The neighbor was not a Christian. But she knew that Rosaria had become a Christian. And the neighbor said to her, I didn't care about who God was to you in your happiness. But but now that you're suffering, I want to know, who is your God? Where is he in your suffering? I didn't care what God meant to you when everything was great. But now that you're suffering, I want to know, who is your God? Where is he in your suffering? The measure of our relationship with God is not when we're happy. It's not when things are going well. It's when we're suffering. When we have come to know the living God, we will run to him and cling to him. Even in our devastation. Even though we don't understand what's happening to us. We will run to God and we will cling to him because we know other saviors are powerless. Other hopes are false hopes. Only the living God has the wisdom and power to help us. The last two miracle stories in this passage are both about food. Verse 38 sets the scene by telling us there's a famine. This famine is just one manifestation of the culture of death in Israel. When the Lord gave the land to the Israelites, it was described as a fruitful land, a land that was flowing with milk and honey. But it's not like that anymore. Sin is massing everything up. So when the company of the prophets have a meeting, the meal is not going to be a bring and share. People don't have things to bring. But Elisha asks someone to make a stew, which sounds good. But what do you put in a stew when there's a famine? Well, this guy puts in whatever he finds growing in the forest, even though he doesn't know what it is. In fact, verse 39 says, nobody knows what it is. But when they start eating, they know it's terrible. Verse 40 says, as they began to eat it, they cried out, Man of God, there's death in the pot. And they could not eat it. Death in the pot is a brilliant way to describe somebody's cooking. At least if you never wanted to be invited back, it would be a good way to go about it. But what does it mean? What do these people mean when they say it? Well, there are several ways we could understand this. It may mean this stuff is actually poisonous. Or maybe it might mean that it makes them feel unwell. 
But I'm inclined to think what these people are saying is, this is too disgusting to eat. The text doesn't say they ate it and got sick. It says in verse 40, they could not eat it. But either way, whether this is a deadly serious situation or just a mildly serious one, the hungry people cry out to the man of God. And the stew is miraculously made either safe to eat or enjoyable to eat. In verse 43, it says there's nothing harmful in the pot. That could also be translated, there's nothing disagreeable in the pot. Then in the very last incident, the problem is not bad food, it's scarce food. Elisha receives a delivery of 20 loaves plus some ears of new corn. That is not enough, apparently, for a hundred men. But as it's served up, it miraculously becomes enough. There's even some left over. We have to ask, how do these last two incidents fit with what we've seen in the passage as a whole? Don't these bits seem a bit lighthearted? Maybe a bit frivolous? Two near misses at mealtime, a disgusting stew and an inadequate lunch. But I think that's the point. The first two incidents were deadly, serious situations. A woman about to lose her sons to slavery and a woman who did lose her son to death. And in contrast to that, these two are minor but God still gets involved. And surely the point is, when he is at work bringing life in the midst of death, then God's people know their daily needs matter to him. They begin to turn to him in the small things as well as the big things. And that is exactly how the Son of God told us to be. To be people who pray, give us this day our daily bread. We don't just turn to you in the big moments of life. We turn to you in every moment of life, for every need. We've just mentioned Jesus' prayer. And in fact, it's hard to read these miracle stories and not be reminded of Jesus' ministry. In the New Testament, don't we find him feeding large crowds of people with just a few loaves of bread? Don't we find him raising a lady's son from the dead in Luke chapter 7? And don't we find too that the name Jesus means the Lord saves? Elisha's ministry in dead Israel was a preview of Jesus' ministry in a dead world. And alongside Jesus' feeding and healing miracles, he began the work of bringing a people to life. A people who trusted God and lived for God. And Jesus started that work right at the bottom of society with no-name people, fishermen, prostitutes, and tax collectors. 
But their lives were changed. And their changed lives made a difference. The church of Jesus Christ didn't grow through astounding miracles. Certainly powerful things did go on. But God chose to spread life in the midst of a dead world one person at a time. And he did that as one after the other, men and women put their trust in Jesus and they were changed. They began to live their lives differently. They knew God cared about them. Even the smallest details of their lives were important to him. Even their daily bread. And they knew God was the one to cling to even in their suffering. How did they know that? Because God had sent them a savior. Not just another prophet, but this time his own son. And Jesus had gone through the deepest suffering for their sake. Submitting himself to death on the cross so their sins could be forgiven. And then rising from the dead so they could have new life. The first Christians knew a God who did that for them was a God who could be trusted. With everything. Big and small. A God like that was worth their obedience. He was worth living for and working for. They knew their daily needs mattered to him. They went to work in dependence on him. And they clung to him even in their deepest suffering. And those changed lives were used by God to change other lives. In a pagan world, in a culture of death, God brought life. And that is how he does it today. If you are a Christian... The greatest evidence that God brings life in the midst of death is you. As you refuse to live for the idols that everybody else lives for. As you refuse to chase after the false saviors that everyone else chases after. Popularity, wealth, whatever else people think is going to satisfy them. We live in a world that is dead in its transgressions and sins. We live in a world that is headed for God's judgment. Just like ancient Israel was headed for it. And that cannot be changed. The Bible tells us this world will be destroyed by fire. But on the other side of that, the Bible tells us there will be a new world. Where righteousness dwells. And the church of Jesus Christ is an outpost of that new world to come. In a world of death, there is life in the church. And the men and women and children who make up the church. Those who trust in Christ, Ephesians tells us, have been made alive with Christ. So let's realize that. Let's live lives that are different. 
that show the world what a difference Jesus makes in our work, in our daily priorities, our attitudes, even in our suffering. Let's show the world the difference Jesus makes to that. We're no better than other people. But by God's grace, we are changed people. We do have new creation life in us. So let's show people around us what new life is like. Let's live for God in dependence on God. Our next song is a prayer that God would help us in that. That he would fan that life that's in us into flame. O Lord, who came from realms above.